Hi, it's Dan here for Dusty Discs Radio, and this is the podcast Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Today, I'm happy to have as my guest, Robbie Lane. We'll be talking music, travels, the business of music, the ups and downs of being a career entertainer, and we'll get some other insights as well. So stick around for that and for a look inside the Canadian music scene from someone who's been there for more than half a century. Robbie Lane has been a Canadian institution since the mid-1960s, a living historian of sorts, and he remains active today with Robbie Lane and the Disciples, as well as a Zoomer radio show. So thanks for joining me today, Robbie. How are you? I'm great, Dan. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing fine out here in Vancouver, I'm, and you're on the <laughs> East Coast. I'm actually from Guelph. I was born in Guelph, and then I moved out here with my parents many years ago, so... Well, you're living in a beautiful spot. Yes, for sure. And, and how have you been doing through this uh, COVID shutdown? Are you staying healthy? Are you going crazy? Um, staying healthy, but I, it is driving me crazy because we can't play. You know, the band can't play anywhere. No bands can play. Yeah. Are you doing the radio show as well still? Yeah, yeah. That's uh, considered an essential service. I don't right. know how they figure <laughs> I'm so essential, but uh, I'm still doing it. And that's keeping me from going completely around the bend. Yeah. So you've been staying mainly at home, or are you able to go down to the studio? I go to the studio, and there are at MZ Media, there's over 200 employees in different divisions, but about 90% of them are not in the building. Okay. So when I go to do the show, there's maybe one other person, and he's two or three offices away from uh, the studio. So I don't see anybody. I just go in and do my thing. Yeah, it's it's bizarre. It's like the twilight zone right now. I just It, it I, really I, is. Just, I mean, you know, to drive in the parking lot and have one car, you know, it just yeah. it's just so weird. Yeah, I never thought in my life that I would see something like this and all of a sudden 2020 turns out to be a, a bad date. Absolutely. When it started, I remember thinking well, a couple of weeks, three weeks, we can get by. And I really honestly believe that. I had no idea. Well, nobody really had any idea what this was going to turn into. So, uh, yeah, it just keeps on going. Well, I'm glad to hear you're surviving through it. So you've been around for a long time. I mean, the mid-60s, like I said in the intro, you're a living historian. You've, you've sort of lived all this, and you're part of that history as well. But you've got some insights into that. But I'm always curious, what is it? what was your initial introduction to the music business and, and how did you get to the point where you sort of was a defining moment that you said, I can, I can make a living in playing music. Well, making a living and playing music might not <laughs> be exactly, <laughs> but I'll tell you what, how it happened. Um, in public school, I was in the choirs and the glee clubs and all of that. And always in, uh, always took a music class. So I played a couple of different instruments and, um, during the last year of public school, a couple of guys in the neighborhood had gotten guitars and amps, and uh, they wanted to put a band together. So we did. And I was 13. Um, the guys were all we were all around the same age, and it was not a very good band, but it was a start. And we played our own public school, and we played church dances and that kind of thing. And after yeah. a few years, um, we began to check around and look at other bands to see what we could steal and, uh, you know, get some ideas. So Ronnie Hawkins was doing a matinee at a place called the Concord Tavern in, in uh, Toronto. And uh, on a Saturday afternoon matinee, people underage could go as long as you sat in the dining side. So 
we all went um, weeks on end, and so did just about every young musician that I knew in the city. And uh, that was when he was with the Hawks, of course, Robbie Robertson and Garth yeah. Hudson and Levon Hellman, all those original guys. And so it was just like an awakening because we saw what a really tight band and heard what a really tight band could be. And uh, that was really when we sort of decided as a band we wanted to try and do this on a full-time basis. Yeah, well, that's interesting because you get that sort of stars in your eyes. I guess you look at that and go, that's something I'd really like to do. And then Ronnie Hawkins, I was going to ask you about him anyways because he he was uh, a Canadian icon himself, and he's a wild and crazy guy. So I saw that you he called sure you called him on his 83rd birthday. Tell me a little I bit did. about tell me a little bit about Ronnie Hawkins and your experience. So you ended up being his backup band, right? That was only just a few years later. Yeah. Well, what happened was that one Saturday afternoon at the Concord, a friend of mine had gone to Hawkins without my knowledge, and said, "You know, there's a young singer here, and he's got his band with him." and uh, maybe you'd like to hear him. And so, without giving me any uh, information beforehand, Hawk got up to do his second set and uh, did one song, and then he introduced me. Well, I was floored. I, was, I had no idea this was going to happen, but I got up and uh, did a couple of songs with the Hawks, and after that, uh, Ronnie came to me and said, why don't you bring your entire band next Saturday afternoon, you can do one set. Oh. Of course, I thought this was like the thrill of a lifetime. Meanwhile, he was just so hungover from the party the night before, <laughs> he was looking for any excuse to have somebody else play. Uh, so we did that, and after that, he called me. And he said, the Hawks are leaving. I don't know when exactly, but I want you to come and play downstairs at a place he had moved clubs, and he was now at Lecoq Door on Young Street, and there was a downstairs dining room. So he said, weekends, you come play downstairs. I'll come down and do a couple songs with you every set. And meanwhile, the Hawks were upstairs on the main floor yeah. with him doing their regular show. So that, when they left, we just moved upstairs and stayed there for about a year and a half with Ronnie. Yeah, so that pretty much was your, your in to the music business at, at a much higher level than would have been just sort of banging the clubs or trying to get some afternoon dances and stuff. You were sort of thrust into the middle of something that was pretty cool right away, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, we consider ourselves really lucky. And through that experience, uh, we recorded a couple of songs which were uh, released on the Hawk label and charted on Chum, which was the big deal back then. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, you know, that really got us started. Meantime, I had been doing, uh, aside from the band, I had been doing some appearances on uh, a CBC show called Music Hop, which was a sort of 5.30 in the afternoon. There was a show from five different cities right across the country, and one was Toronto. Alex yeah. Trebek was the host, and so I'd been doing this show maybe once a month or once every six weeks for about a year. And uh, after we'd been with Hawkins uh, as his backup band on the main floor, um, the producer of Music Hop came to me and said, we're doing a pilot for a show for CTV, and uh, we'd like you to be the house band So and the host. Yeah. So uh, 
that's how that show happened. Isn't that interesting? You, you, you look back and you see how everything, one thing led to another. And, and it's funny with Ronnie Hawkins, like he, he led to so many other artists. That was he just open and just had lots, it sounds like he just had lots of people come on and sing, come on and play and, and just encouraged everybody in, in all his craziness and his partying and all the, the stuff he's well known for. Uh, that he was very open and very inviting to a lot of musicians and gave a lot of people their start. He did. I mean, the list is uh, endless. And some of them have gone on to be, you know, huge music influences like David Foster. The first time I saw him play yeah. was with Ronnie's band. When we were on our own after we'd left uh, the Hawk, uh, David Foster is probably one of the world's most successful producers and he got his start with with ronnie yeah it's funny because i read david foster's book and he mentions that experience in there i can't really repeat the story that he tells in there uh, on air <laughs> but uh, i don't know if you've had a chance to uh, <laughs> if you've had a chance to read yeah it. I, I know yeah. the story <laughs> yeah but uh but it was yeah he, he speaks very favorably and he said you know, that was uh, a fun time for him and now that was before he went to la i think he was he was just a young yeah. guy kicking around playing playing piano i guess but so then That's you right. so you were on the, the CBC Music Hop. Yeah, um, I did that show probably once every six weeks for a couple of years. Yeah, what a great thing for a young guy, right? You must have just felt that this all the all the everything fell into place for you, and just thought this is. And then you did the Agogo, uh, -Go, the 1966 uh, show. Yeah, that was the that was the first year on CTV, uh, Agogo 66, and then for three seasons after that, they changed the name to It's Happening. So a total of four seasons on uh, CTV. And it was a primetime uh, teenage kind of uh, music show. Yeah. Yeah, it was nice that you guys all look. I, I watched some video clips of it. There wasn't very many clips of the uh, It's Happening TV show. Are those not out there or available? I didn't find any on YouTube. I was looking for some. There, uh, I have, um, it was really strange. About 15 years ago, I got a call from a young guy who was working uh, at CTV in the archives, and they were taking a lot of the old tape, the two-inch videotape, and either throwing it in the garbage or uh, putting it, uh, dig loading it into a digital form. And he called me. He didn't know me, but there was a phone number somehow attached to my name. And uh, he called me and said, I've got eight uh, half-hour It's Happening shows. Do you want them? Yeah, wow. And I said, yeah. What time can I come now yeah, and get them? Next question. So, yeah, so I went and got them, and uh, I actually took the shows and edited them and put them into uh, a DVD called The Lost Tapes which is available on our website at RobbieLane.com. Well, very nice. Well, thanks for sharing that, because uh, otherwise those you think those things would have been in the dustbin. You think they would have chucked them? They would have been. Oh. They would have been. And, you know, uh, CTV and probably a lot of other places did the same thing. They would take those two-inch tapes and reuse them, so they would record over anything that was on there. There's a whole couple of seasons of Kenny Rogers and the first edition yeah. doing a, a show for CTV that they just recorded over. You it's, know, I mean, years later, those would have been like gold. Well, it's part of Canadian history. I mean, you're destroying yeah. history. It's like destroying a monument or something that was done that's historically significant. You're right. Wow. So then you got you got some record deals. You got Fannie Mae and Tiger in Your Tank, and and you started doing the the uh, record. You got a record deal, and then you started doing uh, lots of shows with your own uh, with your own stuff as your own act. 
Yep. Uh, we the first couple of records that we put out was on the Hawk label, which was Ronnie Hawkins' company, yeah. and there was very little distribution. There was a guy that worked for Hawkins and drove uh, a station wagon, and he would drive. This was our distribution. <laughs> he would drive all over southern Ontario to various record stores and try and convince them to stock the Hawk label, okay. and that didn't work very well. But after we left Hawkins. Uh, Capital Records came along and said, let's do something. And so we signed a deal with Capital. That was a great experience because Paul White, who was the A&R guy at Capital Records, he signed some of the best Canadian bands back in those days, uh, bands like the Staccatos, uh, which became five men yeah. and uh, others, you know, like he was, he was a real digger of, uh, Canadian talent. He did a lot for, for everybody in the industry in this country. Yeah. So the uh, Capitol records, was it a U.S. deal as well, or was it a Canadian deal? It was a Canadian deal. And, uh, at that time, um, Capital was pretty much standing on its own two feet in Canada. They didn't get any financial help from the mother company hmm. in the U.S. Uh, I think that probably, well, there's no doubt that they shopped uh, the stuff that they signed in Canada to the U.S. market, but a lot of it didn't get released. Yeah, which is fairly typical. I mean, it's uh, it's a different world, right? So, but, so you did... Uh Sandy, written by Dion, and then the Neil Sedaka song, What Am I Going to Do? Yeah, yeah. Um, the what Am I Going to Do uh, was given to me by uh, the publishing arm of Capitol Records. And two years ago, I interviewed Neil Sedaka uh, because he was doing a fundraiser here in Toronto. Oh, nice. And so a couple of weeks before, three weeks before, I did a, a phone interview with him. And uh, I during the conversation, I said to him, you know, I recorded one of your songs. And he said, oh, which one? And I told him, what am I going to do? And he said, well, I didn't know that. Can you send me a, you know, can you email me a link and let me hear it? And I said, absolutely. And I said, by the way, if you're thinking about royalties, it didn't sell all that well. <laughs> so <laughs> there may be a couple of bucks, and that's about it. Yeah. Did but, you ever... uh, I did send it to him. Yeah, good. Did, you, did you ever get to meet him back in the day, or it was just a song that was presented to you, and you thought, yeah, sure, I'll sing that one? I met him the night that he performed uh, a fundraiser here okay. in Toronto within the last couple of years. Yeah. So, uh, like, picking songs back then, your manager or your record company would just come to you and say, we think you should try this song. I mean, you had the look and the personality and whatnot, so they just wanted to find songs that would that would match up. So you did Ain't Love a Funny Thing, and... And Sandy, yeah. and, and those were presented to you by the record company. Was that their suggestion, or was that songs that you had thought you might be successful? Um, we had, uh, yeah, the record company would suggest songs that they already had publishing on, but we were in the in the process of writing quite a bit as well. So about half the songs on the first album for Capital were written by either me or members of our band. And uh, Capital was all for that. I mean, they they would suggest songs, and they did. Like, for example, you mentioned Sandy. Um, and, um, you know, if it, if it fit, we would do it. Uh, and also, we uh, recorded some of our own. So the yeah. album is about a 50-50 mix. Okay. Oh, neat. Yeah. And, and then, so what was the band name 
like you went to Butterfingers? With Robbie and, Lane and the Disciples. But what was the Butterfingers thing in 1968? What was that? You were well, Butterfingers, we were also doing a lot of commercials yeah. in those days. You, you mentioned Put a Tiger in Your Tank. That was actually a commercial that we did for Imperial Oil or Esso. Oh, okay. And, uh, and, and I don't know why, but Capital liked it enough to release it as a single, and it did get some airplay, but not it wasn't really a hit. Yeah. Um, and the Baby Ruth Butterfingers thing, Baby Ruth was a candy bar that was a big seller in the U.S., but had never been distributed in Canada. And uh, there was a deal made, and they decided to release uh, Butterfinger candy bar and Baby Ruth candy bar in Canada and market it. So they wanted a TV commercial uh, to promote that. So they hired us to write the song and perform it. It was an instrumental yeah. um, song and perform it on a TV commercial, which we did. And then uh, out of that came a release uh, on record as well. Yeah, but they were so. But that wasn't as Robbie Lane and the Disciples, though. No, okay. they didn't want us using our our name. They wanted us to be the Butterfingers. I got you. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't quite sure. I was trying to figure out what what the reasoning was there, and I I sort of got the the candy bar connection, and I got the uh, that, but I didn't understand quite why. But I guess they they wanted a sort of a I don't know a generic name of a band. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and the two the two candy bars they were releasing were Baby Ruth, which was the name of the song, and Butterfingers, which was <laughs> turned out to be the name of our band for that particular song yeah. only. Interesting. Yeah, that's good. Well, good. Well, we're talking to Robbie Lane here. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back and get some more fun insights from the early days of Canadian music. We'll be right back. You can hear music from today's guests and other Canadian musicians from the 60s to 80s every Tuesday and Thursday on Dusty Discs Radio, including one-hit wonders, regional favorites, songs from the top and bottom of the charts, TV show theme songs, commercials, and a news clip or two from back in the day. Listen online at DustyDiscsRadio.com or download the TuneIn Radio app to your tablet or smartphone. Search Dusty Discs Radio and mark it a favorite. Now let's get back to our special guest. All right, we're back. We're talking to Robbie Lane about some of his experiences in the 60s and then getting into the 70s. And, uh, you know, one of your... I was reading some biography on you and it said it that he toiled in the circuit as a solo act and finally broke through in 1974 signing with Celebration Records and then released the single Milady. I'm not sure if that's the most flattering uh, way to put uh, the way your career went, but uh, you, you had some real successes and then were there some gaps in your career? Like there were some times when you're, when you're really up and then other times when you're kind of down or things didn't work out the way you wanted? Well, you know, I guess uh, maybe not everybody if they were lucky, but most people in this business... Uh, end up having hills and valleys. And yeah. definitely after uh, 1970, 71, there were, there were a lot of times uh, when we were in valleys. We were traveling, doing the bar circuit, and doing shows all over su- northern and southern Ontario, and some traveling out west and out east. But it was six days a week, and uh, the seventh day you would travel. So that got you know, that gets to you every once in a while. And uh, you can't have a personal life because there's no time. So um, I was lucky. I met my wife, Marilyn, 
uh, in the mid-1960s in London, Ontario, okay. and we were married, and she traveled with me. So oh. I was really fortunate in that I, she could travel and do all the things that I had to do. That really kept the marriage together, and we... Uh, we're still together. We'll be married 50 years this coming February. Oh, well, congratulations. Uh, what you say Thank is... Thank you. Uh, I, yeah. yeah, I'd like to say 50 years, 10 of the happiest years of my life. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> no, that's I'll it. pay for that. I appreciate you saying that. I, I did the club circuit in the 80s, so I, I know the six nights, and you travel on the Sunday, and you're giving your life away. You're in some hotel room. You're a 1,000 miles from nowhere, shaking your head, going, what the heck am I doing here? And, exactly. Having your wife with you would would have uh, been a good thing. So then you got a, a record deal in 1974. Then you got uh, a deal with Celebration Records. How did that come about? Yeah, which was an arm of Quality Records. And so we released, uh, I don't know, the two, three uh, singles uh, during that time. And by this, by that particular point, I was getting kind of fed up with the business and I mean I love music I've always wanted to perform but the traveling was just taking its toll so I stopped um, about 1977 and got into the booking and management end of the business okay. and I did I did that for two or three years and then we reassembled the original disciples and since 1981 uh, when we reassembled and started working only in the Toronto and Southern Ontario area and only on the weekends. Yeah. Um, we've been doing it steadily ever since. We've never stopped until uh, this pandemic stopped. Yeah, isn't that a neat story? Because that that's you feel more in control of your life. I mean, one of the things when you're young and you're just kind of doing what, what you're directed to do, I have a sense that you f you don't feel like you're in control of your life, and then later on, when you got more choices and you can work on the weekends, you can play where you want to play. You feel like you're not giving yourself away, and you're not giving your life to to something. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that, and and even more than that is that when you're on the road and you're working in North Bay or Timmins or somewhere like that, not that any of those places are bad, but no. you're just tired of being traveling and you're waiting for the agent to call you to tell you where you're going to be next week. Yeah. And sometimes you, sometimes you don't know until really the last minute. So that really takes a toll on, your, on all of the creative juices that you might normally have had. You just, you're fed up. You, know, you, you, you don't want to do that traveling anymore. So that's why I ended up stopping for a while. And now, as you said... Now we're in control. We can play when we want to, and it's fun. Yeah. That's, and that's how it all started. When we were kids, we played for fun. It Absolutely. wasn't money. It was fun, so that's what we do now. That's what I find is like, like house gigs or, or banging the circuit for six nights a week. It sucks the musical life out of you. I just found that I was tired. I would wake up in the mornings, and I'd just be tired, and I didn't even know why I was tired. I was just tired of being on the road and tired of... Yeah. playing every night and and going through the grind so it just became a bit of a grind so yeah and going nowhere yeah, yeah that's right because you're waiting and, you know you're going you're going everywhere but at the same time you're going nowhere well you talk about waiting for the agent to call too and then they call you on the friday and then they they give you a gig that's not the same kind of money that you used to make in but you have no choice because you're on the road and you have to go and do it 
So yep. th- those things happen as well. It. So uh, it's interesting yep. you, that you became an agent for a little while. You know, every, every agency I've ever worked for, I think, has asked me to come and be an agent. And it's something I always resisted. I just didn't want to do it because it would take away from the me- I like music because I like to play music, not because I want to teach music or book bands. So how did you find that experience? Um, I learned a lot about myself, and I learned a lot about that end of the business, and became really tight with a lot of musicians uh, and acts that I represented, which normally you would never have time to do, because when you're working every week somewhere, uh, you don't really get a chance to go and see anybody else. Um, So this gave me the opportunity to see a lot of different acts and a lot of different artists and uh, get to know them and and always learn. And so from that, I took away a great deal of uh, musical knowledge and uh, and a lot of friendship. So I, I I think that was a very valuable time for me, although not very uh, productive in terms of my own musical career, but still, I learned a lot from it. Yeah, and you make a good point, because when you're on the circuit, there's lots of people that you sort of know, but you don't know them. You know of them, and you're peers, in a sense, because they're they're coming in the week after and, and following you in, so you know who they are, but you don't really know them, because you never get a chance to hang out with them, because you're always working all the time. Exactly. So I I did that. I owned a PA company in the 80s, and I got to meet a lot of bands through that. So because it was so expensive to rent gear back then, I just thought, well, I better buy some stuff and go. So that was my in to meet a lot of different people and and go through that. So I wanted to ask you, uh, you mentioned earlier about the uh, the songwriting thing. And uh, Mm -hmm. I was curious about that because I wanted to know how many songs you wrote as opposed to songs you picked. And I I was thinking, you know, George Strait, for example, huge star. everyone's aware of who George Strait is, but he didn't write songs. He said, my gift was picking the right songs. And he, he had over 20 hit songs, right? I think it might even be more than that. But he just picked them and he would go through the songs and he could pick the songs that he thought would be hits. And he was really good at that. That's so he said that was his skill rather than songwriting. So how did you do with songwriting? And is that something you're still passionate about? I haven't written a lot in the last few years. Uh, but in the beginning... Uh, the, one of the first guitar players in my original Disciples was Dominic Troiano. Yeah. And uh, he and I were the same age, and uh, somebody that I knew put me together with him and said, you know, this guy would be great for your band. And uh, I met him and listened to him, and right away, there was no question about wanting to work with him. But he was already writing all the time, and so he took me into his house and showed me, uh, and we were, I think, 15 or 16, Um, and so so he showed me how he came about writing and how he believed that writing was from your heart, not from your brain. Um, And uh, so he and I wrote a few songs together, and then after that, after Dominic had gone on to fame and glory in other acts, uh, I continued to write uh, a little bit here and there. Uh, I'm not. I don't consider myself a songwriter at all. I hope that not as successfully as George Strait, but I hope in some sense I I was a good song picker more than a writer. But that's that's a. I hadn't heard that before about him, but uh, I love the fact that he uh, pats himself on the back for being a good picker. <laughs> it was it was an interesting thing because you you never know. I mean, uh, obviously uh, people like Elvis never wrote a song. They just 
made the song what it needed to be and and i think that's a, a separate skill but it's also a, a very valuable skill because there's there's songwriters out there who are professional songwriters who have songs that'll sit on the shelf for years until someone like yourself or someone like a george Strait comes along and says hey i, I can make something out of that song so so you're right yeah music careers are a series of ups and downs obviously but what do you what do you consider the best time like what was the the best time of your career or the the peak would you say i I guess probably in the years that we uh, did the TV show and we had a, a deal with Capital and we could pick and choose uh, what kind of gigs we wanted to do live because having that exposure gave us the opportunity to do that. Um, and also, when you're young, you're almost tireless. Yeah. So, you know, you can play all the time and do what, all the things that you have to do and still have the energy the next day to get up and do it again. And as time goes on, that changes. <laughs> so as far as, I guess that would be the most exciting time. But, you know, every once in a while something happens, even up to this stage in my life, where I get an opportunity to do something which I maybe had never done before, and it just it just opens up all of that wonder again. So it's never too late. It's always, uh, there's always something ahead. And I'm a great believer in visualization. I believe that if you can see yourself doing something, chances are you will find yourself going in that direction, and that will happen eventually if you just keep, uh, keep going towards that. Well, that's an inspiration, too. I mean, you've been active for a long time, and you're still active, and it's, it's funny that you should say that because sometimes, you know, being on stage as an older person, you, you can feel 18 years old again, right? You just look out, and your yeah. people are smiling at you, and you're affirming them, and they're buying what you're selling, and they're, they're giving you the love back, and, and you just feel like you're 18 again. So it, you're an inspiration in that respect and the fact that you're still playing and and doing shows when you can, obviously, because of this whole shutdown thing. It, as you said, it kind of changed everything. It did, yeah. But, you know, there are better days ahead. I, I believe that. Yeah, I, I think so, too. I'm, I'm the eternal optimist. We need to leave it here, but check out the next episode for the second half of my chat with Robbie Lane. Catch you then.